Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Well, I don't don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, we have kind of an uncanny ability to rewrite history in a way that suits our own desired narrative. And so sometimes what happens is the history that we hold on to is not really history at all. Instead, it's much more a figment of our own imagination that we construct in order to feel more comfortable. And the truth is we do this in a general sense and then we do it in a very personal one as well. So like on the one hand, we have a tendency to do this with the general history of our country. For years, a narrative has been constructed that says that America was founded as a distinctly Christian country and that all of our founders were exclusively good and godly men. Yet the more that we press into the actual facts of our founding, rather than this fiction that we've sort of rewritten it with, the more we learn that that's full of inaccuracy, that it's imperfect at best. We do this with the history of race in our country. I literally just watched this string of recent interviews with a handful of people living in a small southern town who all said that the notion of slaves being mistreated, beaten, and abused was fake news. Instead, they said that slaves loved the masters who owned them and they felt lucky to be able to serve them. Now, can we just be like barely honest enough to be able to say there's a higher likelihood that Star Wars actually happened (laughs) a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away than any of that being true? It's just this disgusting rewrite of history in general. But the truth is, we do this in a very personal way as well. For instance, I I spent a good 20 years of my life convincing myself and everyone else that my own childhood was exclusively awesome and only benefited me, as if that's true for anybody at all. And the truth is, it wasn't until I sat with my therapist for the first time almost two years ago, and I was just simply describing my childhood experience, and as I was doing that, it took that for it to start to sink in that maybe there were many ways in which I'd rewritten my own history. Because as I talked and talked and talked, she must have stopped me three times to go, whew, that's a lot. And the first time I was like, yeah, 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 don't interrupt my story. (laughs) And I kept going, but by the third time I was like, she's right, that is a lot. This was not awesome. And so the truth is we all have this uncanny ability to rewrite history in a way that suits our desired narrative. And sadly, both biblical and church history are not exempt from this. And so as we continue our series, Fiercely Feminine, which if you haven't been with us, what we're doing is we are looking at the diverse faces of female strength in Scripture— And so this morning, I want to look at a woman whose history has been profoundly rewritten for hundreds of years. She's a woman who 
Uh, Many of us have probably never even heard of, and the truth is even scholars don't know very much about her. Yet, she was familiar to the early church, she was very important to the Apostle Paul, and I want to introduce you to her today. And so this morning, I want to talk about Junia the Noteworthy. Junia the Noteworthy. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 16. We are specifically going to be in verse 7. This is the singular verse that we have about this woman, Junia, in the entire Bible. So Romans 16, verse 7, while you're turning there, just a little bit of context to help us get a sense of where we're at and what's happening. We all have varying levels of, of, uh, of experience and understanding of the Bible. So let me just help you understand what's happening as we drop in on this one verse. After his death and resurrection, the scriptures tell us that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people which is one of the great proofs of the resurrection, is that we have hundreds of eyewitness accounts of people who saw Jesus die and then saw him alive. And so just prior to what we call his ascension, when he ended his earthly ministry and returned to heaven, Jesus told his early followers to take the message of his redeeming kingdom to the whole world. And so the book of Acts records exactly how this message spread. And as the good news of Jesus went out, these early disciples began to gather together in what we now call churches. But remember, this was an exceptionally disorganized and messy season for the church of Jesus. These were churches that were made up of about half of the people were coming out of Judaism, and the other half of the people were coming out of paganism. So just imagine that. Like we we literally live in a day and an age when it's almost impossible right now for Republicans and Democrats to worship in the same churches. And I got to tell you, this was like so much more complicated than all that. Because you had people from different ethnicities with different social standings, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions and theological convictions. They were coming from completely different backgrounds regarding things like sexuality and gender and marriage and politics. So the one thing that they shared in common. And the one thing that was enough for them was that they all followed Jesus. And slowly, as Jesus gripped their hearts more and more, he was transforming them into his image in community. But as a result of all of this interpersonal and theological complexity that these early churches were experiencing, the Holy Spirit helped people like the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans to write these letters to these churches in order to help them work through the specific issues that they were facing in their particular cultures. And this letter to the Romans is Paul's magnum opus. It's not only his longest letter, it's also his most theologically dense. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look back at Romans 16. This is the third message from this one chapter that we've had. But we're going to look back and remember Paul is commending and greeting 26 different people, nine of which were women, and they were all a part of the three to five household churches in the city of Rome at this time, most likely in the year AD 57 is when we think this was written. And it's here in verse 7 when we meet this amazing woman, Junia. So look with me. If you don't have scripture uh, in front of you, uh, it's going to be up on the screen. So listen to this. This is Romans 16, verse 7. Paul continues writing this. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. 
All right, so again, outside of what Paul records here, we know virtually nothing about the two people who are mentioned. That being said, what Paul does give us is of great significance. Now, Andronicus is a masculine name and Junia is feminine. And the fact that they are greeted together here, much like Priscilla and Aquila were, indicates that they were more than likely a married couple. Now, the fact that Paul refers to them as fellow prisoners means that at some point, they were imprisoned together. Now, we have no idea when, but in 2 Corinthians 11.23, Paul states that he was imprisoned many, many times for preaching the gospel. So one of those times, he must have been imprisoned with Andronicus and Junia. But the truth is, none of that is really the interesting part. There are three points of interest of which I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first is this. Junia and Andronicus were an apostolic team. Junia and Andronicus were an apostolic team. Now, we don't have time for a deep dive into the specific function of the apostles in the New Testament. And so in a nutshell, it was a form of leadership in the early church. And so they were a team that led together. Now, I want you to notice again back in verse 7, Paul says this. He says, they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Now, if you're holding a hard copy Bible in front of you, you might notice that there's a footnote attached to this verse. There's probably a footnote attached, and regardless of the translation you read, there's a footnote that reads at the bottom, or they are noteworthy among the apostles. So what that means is there is discrepancy between scholars in what the best way is to translate this sentence from the original Greek. Now, both of those translations, whichever one it is, they both indicate that we should pay attention to the example of Andronicus and Junia, but they obviously claim very different things. Because either this couple were admired by the apostles or they too were apostles. And so despite the translation in the Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation that I teach from here, um, I think that the better way to translate this is that they were noteworthy among the apostles. In fact, there's much more consensus pushing that direction. So if you have in front of you maybe the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New Living Translation, even the King James, all of those translate the Greek as among the the apostles in the main text. And that's significant, and it's not just due to someone's opinion. The truth is the earliest manuscripts that we have say among the apostles And this was clearly the way that it was understood by the early church fathers and mothers. For instance, there was a prominent early church father named John Christentum. He lived in AD 347 to 407, and he served as the archbishop of Constantinople. And he translated this verse as, Greet Andronicus and Junia, who are outstanding among the apostles. He then commented on this verse, and he wrote this. He said, To be an apostle is something great but to be outstanding among the apostles. Just think what a wonderful song of praise that is. They were outstanding on the basis of their works and virtuous actions. Indeed, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. Now, the fact that they shared this title with the apostle Paul doesn't necessarily mean that they serve the exact same apostolic function but it does indicate that they must have planted and led in the church together. And because the text acknowledges that they did this work together, it's important that we do too. 
In fact, here's the second point of interest. Junia's story was completely rewritten. Junia's story was completely rewritten. Now, I don't think this will come as a massive surprise to anyone, but you know, history is undeniably patriarchal, right? So even in recent history, we have so many examples of the ways in which women have been perceived and treated as inferior to men. And the truth is, the more that we resist having to face that, the more it reveals the problem. And sadly, this has been true throughout much of Christian church history as well. And Junia is an incredible example of this. Do you know that until somewhere in the 12th century, it was universally understood that Junia was a woman who was most likely the wife of Andrew Nicus. Now, the fact that the earliest manuscripts named Junia among the apostles made medieval translators very uncomfortable. Because in their mind, they're like, how in the world could a woman be an apostle? And so what they did is they assumed that there must have been an error in their manuscripts because from their vantage point, a woman simply could not be named as an apostle. And so as a result, this still blows my mind. But as a result, they began changing her name from the feminine Junia to the masculine Junius. And the problem with that is, as Dan Kimball writes, there is no record of anyone with the name Junius in first century Greek writings. Junia, however, was a common woman's name, and the writings of the early church refer to Junia as a woman. So they just like completely wrote her out of the Bible. Like just think about how dishonoring and disrespectful that is, both to the scriptures in general, because they like literally rewrote Bible, and how dishonoring and disrespectful it was to Junia in particular. Like just think about how bad you feel when someone writes you out of something that you played an essential part in. Like I have this friend who used to do this in a small way, but oh my gosh, it drove me so crazy. I would consistently hear this person recommending music to other people that they claimed they had, quote, discovered. The problem was I was the one who told them about it. And never one time did I ever hear him go, uh, Ryan sent me this great new album, you should check it out. Like one time, they even tried to tell me about an album I had told them about, as if it was their discovery and their idea. It was maddening. And so my point is just simply like, how terrible to write someone out of something that they play such an essential part in. And that's exactly what happened to Junia. Forget this, 700 years for 700 years, her name was completely written out of Scripture until in the mid-20th century when the error was discovered and then finally corrected. Junia's story was rewritten, and it's essential that we continue to make that right. Which brings me to this last point. Junia was noteworthy. Junia was noteworthy. Now again, I prefer the way that the NIV and NASB translate the Greek word that our translation translates as noteworthy. These other translations translate this Greek word as outstanding. And I think that's clearer for us to understand what Paul's getting at. Among the early church leaders, these two were outstanding, meaning they were unique in their faithfulness. They were worthy of special attention. They were noteworthy which I don't know about you, but prompts a practical question in my mind. And the question is this, what type of person is noteworthy in God's eyes? 
I wonder if you've ever thought about that question before. And not like, what type of person is noteworthy in my eyes or your eyes? Because we tend to find people who are attractive and charismatic and uniquely gifted or creative. We tend to find those types of people noteworthy. And so who really cares about that? What really matters is what type of person does God find noteworthy? Like what type of person does God look at and when he sees them, his heart swells? What type of person does God gather angels around to go, you've got to see this person? What type of person is noteworthy in God's eyes? Now we don't have a bunch of specifics here about what it is exactly that made Andronicus and Junia noteworthy, but we have plenty of scripture to know what type of people are noteworthy in God's eyes. And so we can't cover all of that, but I do want to just highlight three for you this morning. So if we have an aspiration, which we should, to be noteworthy in God's eyes, here's at least three things that increasingly need to be present in us. And the first is humility. Humility. I want you to just listen to a few verses this morning. These aren't going to be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. Maybe even just close your eyes for a moment and just listen to these verses read over you. Psalm 25 verse 9 says that God leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Proverbs 29:23 says a person's pride will humble him, but a humble spirit will gain honor. In Luke 14:11 Jesus said for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So, clearly, humility sits among the most important virtues to which we are called as disciples of Jesus. In fact, according to Philippians chapter 2, we are called to model the very humility that Christ himself displayed in his own life. Now, that being said, Uh, Guess how one goes about growing humility. Now, we would love if what it was is like you wake up in the morning and you get alone with God for a few minutes and you're like, Lord, I know that pride comes before a fall and nothing good comes from pride that you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble and so just make me humble. And then he just like sprinkled Holy Spirit dust on your head and you went through the whole day humble. But that's not how God goes about growing humility inside of us. We grow in humility by making deliberate decisions to humble ourselves in situations that trigger our pride. That's how you grow in humility. You make deliberate decisions over and over and over and over to humble yourself in a situation that triggers your pride. Which is why the overarching command in scripture is not be humble, but humble yourself. It's a decision that we make over and over and over that with time leads to a state in which we live. And so we humble ourselves by by not needing to always be right. We grow in humility by placing the needs of others before our own. We grow in humility by sacrificing in secret rather than in ways that garner us praise and attention. And the truth is, man, life provides us with ample opportunities to practice humility. 
And so let's not only pray for it, but also pursue it by seizing these opportunities to humble ourselves. Humility is noteworthy in God's eyes. Here's the second. The second is service. Service. In Matthew 23, verse 11, Jesus pointedly states, the greatest among you will be your servant. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus calls his disciples together and he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. In Galatians 5, 13, Paul says something that should be uniquely convicting for Christians who are living in our current season. Because he says this, he says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. And as Americans, man, we love that verse. We're called to be free. But then he goes on. We don't always love this second part. He says, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. So we could go on and on. But what seems very, very clear is that servant is the functional identity of every follower of Christ. So if you want to know, like if God were going to slap a name tag on you as, a, as his follower, it would be the name tag servant. And so I just want to have a collective moment of reflection here for just a second. I want you to think about the various spheres of life in which you live. Okay, we all have a home in which we live, and unless you're like a sociopath living in the woods, making your own canned goods by yourself, you're probably surrounded by people. Even if you are single and living in an apartment or a house by yourself, my guess is you still have at least a couple of neighbors around you. You probably also have a job or school you go to daily. You have a church home here at Ridgeline. Um, we all have restaurants that we eat in, coffee shops or bars that we hang out in. We have countless errands that we run. And in all of this, guess what all of these spheres have in common? They're all filled with people. And here's why that matters. Every single person that we encounter is an opportunity for you and I to practice service. And it can just be as simple as a kind word of encouragement to a stranger checking you out at the grocery store. And more and more, as we get to take off our masks, it can be as simple as like smiling at someone. Remember that? <laughs> no, I don't either. No one smiles at anyone. No one cares about anyone, anywhere that we go. I have watched Pastor Tyler, that is like, that's like a little thing for him. Like he likes to smile at people he doesn't know. It's, well, he loves it. It's great. And so now he tries to do it in his mask when he's at Costco and he just looks like a crazy person because his eyes shut as he smiles so big and he just walks into things. And so it's not working as well. So the mask coming off is going to be really, really huge for his service game. But listen, my, my point is just we don't have to blow service into these big, massive, like everyone runs to like, we need to build wells in Africa. Well, yeah, that's good. Being nice to people that you interact with is huge too and a really important act of service in and with our lives. Service is noteworthy in God's eyes. And then lastly, and most importantly, is love. And we don't need more than Jesus' words in John 13, 34 to 35 to make clear how important love is to Jesus. He said this, he said, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. Listen to this part. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
I think this is such a convicting check for all of us. So many Christians are bent on being known first and foremost for their doctrine. And listen, doctrine, meaning the things that we believe about Jesus, the things that the scriptures teach, doctrine is essential. Did everybody hear me say that? Because I don't want to hear anything afterwards like, my pastor said doctrine doesn't matter. Okay, I didn't say that. Doctrine matters. It's essential. Biblical belief is essential. And Jesus did not say by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you believe the right things perfectly. Biblical belief is essential. But Jesus said that the world will know we follow him based on the way that we behave toward one another. And sadly, some of the people who are the most precise theologically tend to be the least pleasant relationally. And so if our beliefs aren't making us more loving, either the beliefs themselves or the way we apply them are toxic. And the truth is, what would usher in the most powerful spiritual awakening of all time would be if we just stopped before every word that we speak and every action that we take and we just asked ourselves, is this loving? Humility, service, and love are noteworthy in God's eyes. And it's safe to assume that these are the same virtues that would have made Junia noteworthy among the apostles. And so here's our big idea this morning. If you're taking notes and you want to write this down, the most noble pursuit in life is to be noteworthy in God's eyes. If you kind of feel like you're a ship without a rudder in life and you're not sure where you're headed, you're not sure why you're here, you're not sure what you're supposed to do with your life, it's this. The most noble pursuit in life is to be noteworthy in God's eyes. We as people tend to be so bent on like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And God is far more preoccupied with the type of people we are becoming. What you do matters, but not as much as who you are. And so let's pursue being noble and noteworthy in God's eyes. I just want to keep bringing us back to a very simple question through this series. And here as we close, um, why reflect on Junia? Why reflect on any of these women for that matter? And the answer is because they were noteworthy in God's eyes. God had their stories for a reason written into the scriptures. Their lives and their examples matter. And so we should know them. And one of the many gifts that God has given us in the Bible is these powerful examples, positive examples of how we can live lives in which we flourish and negative examples in which we can figure out how to die on the vine. And we have all of these examples, like the one that we see in Junia or Priscilla or any of these incredible women that we've had the privilege of studying thus far. And so let's wrap our hearts around grace And let's seize these examples that God has given us so that we can thrive with the lives that he has entrusted to us. The most noble pursuit in life is to be noteworthy in God's eyes. And so let's pursue humility, service, and love together. Will you pray with me? And then we'll do some Q&A. Father, we thank you for the example of Junia and Andronicus 
And we thank you, Lord, that you used this couple in ways that we don't know because you haven't told us all the details, but we do know that you use them to be a source of blessing and enrichment in the early church. And we sit here today, a couple of thousand years removed from that, and we continue to benefit from their sacrifice and labor. And so, Lord, I I pray collectively for all of us that you would help grow us to be people who are noteworthy in your eyes. And so, Lord, I pray first and foremost, if there's anyone here who does not know you and has not put their faith in Jesus, Lord, would you awaken their heart to faith, that they would believe that you lived, died, and rose again for us, that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with you, that you did that work on our behalf. And from that place, Lord, I pray that we would pursue things like humility and service and love, and that one day we would be able to stand before you and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, we want to be the people that you created us to be. And so we ask that your spirit would do that work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.